Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 5, Esther, chapters 3 and 4. We got started in chapter 3 of Esther last week. We spent most of our time discussing the issue of the identity of Haman. That's the wicked villain in our story. In verse 1 of chapter 3 of Esther, we hear, Sometime later, King Ahasuerosh began to single out Haman, the son of Hamdata, the Agagi, for advancement. And eventually he gave him precedence over all of his fellow officers. So Haman's identity is central to this story, if we're going to make any sense of it. If Haman is just kind of a random, generic Middle Easterner or a a, a Persian, then indeed we're at a loss to explain his irrational hatred and homicidal actions towards the Jews as a race of people. I mean, the meaning of Agagi in Hebrew, or Agagite, as we say in English, has been disputed by a number of scholars, but mainly because the more liberal ones say there is no evidence outside of the Bible that Haman could have actually been a real descendant of Agag, the king that King Saul dealt with wrongly. That is, he didn't kill him as God had ordered. So Samuel had to step in and he executed this pagan king. The result of King Saul's failure to obey directly led to God's punishment. And he removed Saul from power, giving the throne to David. Some scholars insist that Agog was actually a title that was given to all the kings of Amalek, not a formal name of one of them. Therefore, they reason that the mention of Haman as an Agagite in this story must be something that later Bible editors added to give the book of Esther additional spiritual meaning and drama that was never originally intended. Of course, liberal scholarship can't prove this, It's only an opinion and an assertion. And they prefer it this way because they don't acknowledge the spiritual or the spirit world. And they regard the story of Esther as purely myth and fiction. But neither is there proof he wasn't. The thing is, the designation of Agagite could well be referring to the spirit of Amalek, or better, the spirit of the kings of Amalek, as much or more than Haman's biological genealogy. Either way, it doesn't matter, because the point is that Haman is directly connected to, he is identified with Amalek, whether it is only spiritual or it is physical as well. Now we've discussed this issue of Amalek before, but it can't be dealt with strongly enough because it has everything to do with the irrational hatred of Jews by Gentiles worldwide 
And this has been expressed since time immemorial. God set up a dynamic going back to Genesis 36 where we find that Amalek was a son of Esau. He was Jacob's fraternal twin brother whose mother was a Horite concubine, a Gentile named Timnah. Now let's remember how this issue with Amalek came about because it's important to our, to our story of Esther and it's important to the present situation in the Middle East and it's vital to all that's going to play out in these latter days. In Genesis 25, 21-24 we read this. Isaac, Isaac prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was childless. Adonai heeded his prayer and Rivka, Rebekah, became pregnant. And the children fought with each other inside of her so much that she said, if it's going to be like this, why go on living? So she went to inquire of Adonai, who answered her, there are two nations in your womb, and from birth they will be two rival peoples. One of these peoples will be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. And when the time for her delivery came, there were twins in her womb. So there would always be a spiritual-based enmity between Jacob, who was chosen as the inheritor of God's line of covenant promise, versus Esau, who was rejected. Both would go on to found large nations that would also live out those prophetic destinies. Later on, Esau had a grandson born to him named Amalek, who it turns out would be the one who most embodied the spirit of hatred and enmity towards the Hebrews, Jacob's offspring. And this all began with Esau. In Genesis 36.12, we read this. Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, who was Esau's son, and she bore to Eliphaz Amalek. And then later in Exodus, we read about this eternal war that was going to be fought between God, God's people, and Amalek. In Exodus 17, 13 through 16, we read, Thus, Yahshua, Joshua defeated Amalek, putting their people to the sword. And Adonai said to Moshe, Moses, write this in a book to be remembered and tell it to Joshua. I will completely blot out any memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar called it Adonai Nisi and said, because their hand was against the throne of Yah, against God, Adonai will fight Amalek generation after generation. Thus the overriding issue of our story is that Haman bore the spirit of Amalek. And the question of why he wanted to destroy all the Jews in the world is now answered for us. Without understanding this, you know what? The story of Esther just doesn't make much sense. And neither does the reason for the never-ending murderous anti-Semitism that seems to have infected the whole human race since the days of Jacob and Esau make much sense. 
The story of Esther is so contemporary in many ways that we need to pay attention to it. Mordecai, the Jew, well, he won't bow to Haman, the Amalekite. Therefore, Haman determines all Jews are bad. They are an existential threat to world peace. They have to be wiped out. Of course, the catalyst for all of this is a spiritual war of survival. God said Amalek was to be wiped out. By whom? By God's people. The Hebrews. Only one people between Amalek and Israel can survive. Amalek's determined it's going to be them. And as we look back in history, you tell me what other substantial people group has for millennia been under such constant attack, chased around the world, and survived, maintaining their ancient identity. Gentile governments, such as in our story of Esther, have tried to wipe out the Jews. Christians have tried to wipe out the Jews. The Muslims continue to try to wipe out the Jews. Atheists and secular people and governments have a bent against the Jews and they want them gone. It's illogical, if not downright insane. So why does this enmity of Gentiles towards Jews persist? It is because the spirit of Amalek is alive and well. So when you hear of even Christian denominations who stand with the Palestinians against the Jews, or they demand that Jerusalem be given over to them, or they insist that the Holy Land belongs to the Arabs, understand this is the spirit of Amalek that is present in that particular denominational leadership. Are you associated in some way with one of those denominations? Then understand, no matter how you may all hold hands and pray and sing hymns to Jesus Christ, you've made yourselves sworn enemies to God. Do not be part of such a deception. And by the way, don't thank me for telling you and warning you because now you know. You can't plead ignorance any longer to the Father. Now you're without excuse no matter how clean your own heart might be in that regard because even so, you have chosen to stand with the enemy. So what should you do about that? Revelation 18.4 Then I heard another voice out of heaven saying, My people, come out of her so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. I plead with you, heed God's call to repent, to disconnect entirely from such a group, to disown such wickedness. But I also plead with you to stand with Israel and the Jewish people in spirit and in deed 
because you can't stand with God and do otherwise. Let's reread part of Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3, page 1091 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start at verse 6. However, on learning what people Mordecai belonged to, it seemed to him a waste to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Rather, he, Haman, decided to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole of Ahasuerus' kingdom. So in the first month, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus, they began throwing poor before Haman every day and every month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And when Haman said to Ahasuerus, there is a particular people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of their kingdom and their laws are different from those of every other people. Moreover, they don't observe the king's laws. It doesn't befit the king to tolerate them. If it please the king, have a decree written for their destruction. I will hand over 333 tons of silver to the officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. The king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman, the son of Hamdata the Agagi, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money's given to you, the people too, to do with as seems good to you. The king's secretaries were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and they wrote down all Haman's orders to the king's army uh, commanders and to the governors and all the provinces, and to all the officials of every people, to each province is its own script, to each people in their own language. Everything was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and it was sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by courier to all the royal provinces to destroy, kill, and exterminate all Jews from young to old, including small children and women, on a specific day the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to seize their goods as plunder. A copy of the document to be issued as a decree in every province was to be publicly proclaimed to all the peoples so that they would be ready for that day. At the king's order, the runners went out quickly. The decree was issued in Shushan, the capital. Then the king and Haman sat down for a drink together. But the city of Shushan was thrown into confusion. So Haman has decided to destroy all the Jews. But this was precipitated by Mordecai refusing to submit and to show respect to Haman. And when pressed by his fellow servants and officials to King Xerxes' royal court as to why he wouldn't do something as simple and as customary as to bow to Haman, Mordecai's only response was, I'm a Jew. And then most Bible commentators will go on to say that because the Jews recognized God as their king and their sovereign, they couldn't and wouldn't bow down to any man or it would be idolatry. And that is simply incorrect information. 
The Jews had no issue of bowing down to a king or to a governor or even to merely an aristocrat, Gentile or Jew, because that was standard Middle Eastern custom. God never told the Jews to refuse to bow before their government authorities. They bowed before their own Hebrew kings and nobility, as well as these Persian officials who were puzzled by Haman's stubbornness, and they, they had no doubt seen Mordecai and his fellow Jews bow to countless people because it was common everyday custom. It was just courtesy to do this. Frankly, Haman was rightly humiliated and angry to have such disrespect shown to him in public. I mean, can you imagine meeting the American president or maybe your state governor in public, cameras rolling, and refusing to shake his outstretched hand? Even in Western culture, when we don't like someone or we don't agree philosophically or politically with them, to be civil and to acknowledge their position and status, we'll shake their hand. Bowing before a person to acknowledge their status and to be civil, well, that was usual in Bible times among all known cultures. It's just that in the modern Western world, handshaking is generally replaced bowing. And when we add in that we know that Mordecai was one of the king's officials who fully understand these pro- uh, understood these protocols, and that the consequences, by the way, for mocking them, it makes the offense all the worse. Thus, when we factor in that Haman is called the Agagite, then we understand what it was that Mordecai refused to show respect to the living, breathing spirit of Amalek that stood before him as Haman. And as a bit of an editorial, it appalls me to see officials of Israel's government do the opposite of what Mordecai did. Why Jewish leaders would show respect towards eternal enemies who continue to vow to wipe out the Jewish people and to dissolve the state of Israel, I'll never understand. And brethren, we should be more like Mordecai. Being an instigator and stubbornly refusing to go along with the crowd, that's not always a bad thing. God's eternal enemies do not deserve and they should not receive our acknowledgement or respect. It won't be popular on earth, especially since tolerance for all things is the new creed of the secular world and sadly it has become popular, even doctrinal, within some elements of Christianity. But God will applaud it from heaven, I assure you. So, we have to decide. Do we want the praise of our fellow men or do we want the praise of God? You know, it's easy when it's theoretical or put in spiritual terms. It's not so easy when we're actually confronted with it and our action is required. And opposition and scorn, even from our family and our closest friends, might be the result. 
Well, now that Haman has irrationally decided to commit genocide upon all Jews of the Persian Empire, he begins a long process of planning. Now see, you don't just eradicate two or three million people without a little bit of planning. So this was no spur-of-the-moment overreaction by Haman to Mordecai's humiliation of him in front of his peers. He was literally possessed by this evil intent. So in the month of Nisan, the first month of the Hebrew religious calendar year, he began to have lots cast to determine the most propitious day for the slaughter of the Jews. This might be a good time to mention that the names for the 12 months of the year that we find in the Bible are not actually Hebrew. They're Babylonian. The Jews called the months much like they did the days of the week with a number designation, not a name. But after their time of exile in Babylon, month names became introduced and woven into the Hebrew culture and has remained that way to this day. The Magi of the empire would have consulted, been consulted by Haman and they were the operators of the lots. They were the interpreters of their meaning. That was their function. If we're getting the sense of it correctly in our English translations, then we're told that these lots were cast every single day so that the conclusion could be reached for an optimal time as determined by the the gods for this extermination to begin. Here we find the only use of the word poor. P-U-R, poor in our Bibles. And it is where the word Purim comes from. Pur is actually an Akkadian word that means lot, singular, one lot. The I-M added to the end of the word kind of Hebrewizes this Akkadian word by giving it a Hebrew plural suffix. That makes it lots. Plural, lots. But this is not the regular Hebrew word for lots. That word is goral. Purim is a term that's only used to refer to the outcome of the story of Esther. And that outcome is the deliverance of the Jews from Haman. And thus the name for a joyous annual Jewish celebration of remembrance is called Purim. Lots. And that's what we're about to celebrate in a few more days. The casting of lots for answers to questions, for solutions to problems, and to establish timing for important matters, that was standard in the Middle East. Haman had these lots cast for 11 straight months, which gave him ample time to devise his plan, and the lots then revealed the day and the month to carry it out. And once he had all his ducks in a row, he went in to see King Xerxes because there was no way for this to happen unless the king went along with it. But why would Xerxes do such a thing? Would it not cause as much alarm among other ethnic groups fearing that they might be next as it might 
a bit of joy for someone who didn't much care for the Jews. So Haman has to give the king an awfully good reason for this plan. And Haman does what has been done since time immemorial. He first tells a truth, then he follows it up with a half-truth, and then he pulls it all together with a conclusion that's a lie. First he tells the king that there is a particular people who is scattered and dispersed all throughout his empire. True. And that it is a bit unusual because almost all the provinces and the kingdoms that were captured to create this empire, they were taken largely intact and the people of those provinces and kingdoms were allowed to remain there in their homes. But it was a little bit different for the Jews. They were among a tiny minority who had their homeland destroyed, albeit by the Babylonians, not the Persians. And they were taken as captives to Babylon. Thus, while the other ethnic groups were essentially being occupied by the Persians, for the Jews, their homeland was in a shambles. And it was a somewhat foreign place to most of the living Jews who were born in the empire. So indeed, they were a scattered and dispersed people. Next, Haman tells the king in verse 8 that these people have their own laws and customs which are different from everybody else's. A half-truth. Indeed, the laws of the Jews, the law of Moses, they were at the core of their religion and it was unique from the religious laws of of Gentiles. But in fact, we see the Jews assimilate pretty well within the cultures they are immersed into, and they usually join in with most cultural traditions, even to the point that it at times causes problems with God's commandments. And then finally, Haman tells the king the conclusion of these accusations. The Jews don't obey the laws of the king. That is, they don't obey the laws of the Persian Empire. That's a lie. Therefore, this puts the king's authority, he says, in great danger. Something must be done about it. What ancient Persian documents tell us is that the imperial Persian law extended to every province and district of the empire. However, local laws and customs were to be allowed, providing it didn't conflict in any meaningful way with the Persian laws and customs. The common point was that despite the various districts that had their own customs, in the end, everyone was to declare allegiance to the Persian king. And provided that happened, there was a wide tolerance for a variation of customs, just as no common empire-wide language was required. So Haman is saying that the Jews refuse to acknowledge the sovereignty of Xerxes. Well, what to do? So Haman went into the king knowing that one of the king's issues with Haman's plan would be that citizens pay taxes and tribute. Dead citizens pay nothing. 
In other words, why would the king destroy a meaningful section of his tax base and harm his treasury? And there were two or three million Jews living in Persia, and it is proverbial that wherever the Jews went, they always seemed to be a substantial portion of the local economy. So to head off the king's concern over the loss of treasury money, Haman offered to give the king 333 talents, not tons, talents of silver, which is an enormous amount of money. And this was so he could carry out his plan. Now, you or I might look at this and ask some questions. First, wouldn't the king be suspicious? of the motive of a man who was willing to give away a fortune just to kill these Jews? And second, even for the richest of men, 333 talents of silver, oh, that was an incredible amount of wealth. Was Haman really willing to give away that much money just to settle a personal vendetta with Mordecai? Well, the king might well have been a bit suspicious. But on the other hand, he probably thought that this Haman was so loyal to the king and the empire that he understood the downside of killing so many taxpayers. Thus, Haman's offer was proof of his deep, selfless dedication to the well-being of the king and of Persia. However, as much money as this was, it also means... Haman was a fabulously wealthy man. And now we can understand why he was able to gain an audience before the king whenever he wanted one and eventually found a way to gain governmental power. It's typical the world over that the wealthy often get bored with their wealth. Now they want power to go with it. So they go into politics. Now, obviously, that was the case with Haman. But also, there is little doubt that Haman had a plan in place to confiscate the wealth of the Jews that were going to be exterminated so he would recoup all, if not more, of the 330 talents of silver that he offered Xerxes. All this has such a familiar ring to it because we saw this almost exact scenario occur with Nazi Germany in World War II. Now to this point, notice, the king doesn't seem to inquire, nor is it made known to him, that it is the Jews who are being talked about here. Would that have mattered to him? Probably not. The Jews weren't a significantly populous ethnic group when compared to all the many others of the empire. Besides, Haman convinced the king they were a danger to him. The king agreed, and he handed Haman his signet ring as a symbol that the king's authority had been given over to Haman. Further, Xerxes responds, the money is given to Haman. See, this is a rather cryptic comment that could have a number of meanings. It could mean, I don't need your money, keep it. It could mean, yes, I accept the money, but you use it to carry out your plan since you want to do it so badly. 
It could mean, yes, I accept it and it is to your honor that I accept it. But what is not so cryptic is that the king says that the people, the Jews, they are now Hamans to do what seems good to him. Good, of course, doesn't mean good is in the sense of good versus evil. It just means Ron can do whatever it seems best for him to do with him. Well, verse 12 says that on the 13th day of the first month, the plan was executed. The scribes were brought in. They were to write down and send the plan in the form of a proclamation to the king's army commanders and to the governors of the many provinces and to all the other officials so that they all heard about it more or less at the same time. The language and script, in other words the alphabet, of each province and district was to be used. This was usual practice with the Persians. And to prove that it was under the authority of the king, the seal of the king's signet ring was affixed to each copy so there'd be no doubt. After all, this was a pretty sobering, disturbing decree. All the Gentiles were not only given the right, they were given the instruction to kill every Jewish man, woman, and child in their neighborhood. Even more, they were given permission to loot the possessions of these Jews once they were dead. So let's be clear. The day that's being talked about here is not the day the killing was to occur. This was only the day the proclamation was issued. Oddly, it wouldn't be for 11 more months in the 12th month of the year called Adar on the 13th day that the extermination was actually to take place. Why wait so long? Well, proclamation, uh, rather prep, preparations had to occur and the people who were to carry it out needed some time to let this sink in. Herodotus says that it was known that it would take close to three months for a royal message to finally reach every corner of the empire. But probably the major reason for the delay is that the lots indicated that it was the 13th day of Adar that was the propitious day. But notice something else. The day the plan was put to paper and it was distributed to the provinces was the day before Passover. Passover being the 14th day of the first month of Nisan. This is no coincidence. Well, the decree was posted in the city of Shushan, Susa, the administrative capital of the empire and home to Xerxes, Haman, and Mordecai. The king and his second-in-command, Haman, self-satisfied above it all, well, they sat down to have a drink because they thought everything was being done properly. But we're told that the citizens, the residents of Susa, well, they were thrown into confusion. In other words, this rattled the citizens of Susa to their core. Susa was the place where so many aristocrats and central government officials lived. Nobody saw this coming. And for most, it must have made for many sleepless nights as they wondered what could have happened for the king to take such severe action against an entire people group. But even more, that the king fully expected that ordinary citizens would rise up and participate in this 
genocide. What might happen if you refused? Well, to use the analogy of Nazi Germany, no doubt most citizens of the empire were horrified. They wanted no part in this thing. The Jews were interspersed into society. They were friends, neighbors, even family members by marriage. Mostly good and decent people. But thousands upon thousands of Germans hated the Jews for various reasons. Or simply were so amoral that they cared only to impress their government in order to advance themselves or to had their personal bank accounts with the property of those they were about to help murder. But what shall never be forgotten by the Jews is that in Germany the sign of the cross led the way for professing Christians to carry out these pogroms against the Jews. Christians shouted, Christ killers! at the Jews. They sang Christian hymns. This is all well recorded. As the Jews were rounded up and their possessions confiscated, as their synagogues were torched, often with the rabbi locked inside, and countless pastors and ministers at the thousands of churches in Germany at that time told their parishioners, oh, you're doing God's work in ridding Germany and soon the world of a people that God hated, the Jews. Let's move on to chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Page 1092 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. When Mordecai learned everything that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out through the city, lamenting and crying bitterly. He stopped before entering the king's gate, since no one was allowed to go inside the king's gate wearing sackcloth. In every province reached by the king's order and decree, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and wailing, as many lay down on sackcloth and ashes. And when the girls and officials attending Esther came and informed her of this, the queen became deeply distressed. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear instead of his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. So Esther summoned Hatak, one of the king's officials attending her, and instructed him to go to Mordecai and find out what this was all about and why. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open space in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him and exactly how how much silver Haman had promised to put in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the decree for their destruction issued in Shushan so that he could show it to Esther, explain it to her, and then instruct her to approach the king, intercede with him, and implore his favor on behalf of her people. Hatak returned and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him this message for Mordecai. All the king's officials, as well as the people in the royal provinces, know that if anyone, man or woman, approaches the king in the inner courtyard without being summoned, there is just one law. He must be put to death, unless the king holds out the gold scepter for him to remain alive. And I haven't been summoned to the king for the past 30 days. Upon being told what Esther had said, Mordecai asked them to give Esther this answer. 
Don't suppose that merely because you happen to be in the royal palace that you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows whether you didn't come into the royal position precisely for such a time as this. Esther had them return this answer to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan. Have them fast for me, neither eating nor drinking for three days, night and day. Also I and the girls attending me will fast the same way. Then I will go into the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Then Mordecai went his way and did everything Esther had ordered him to do. We're not going to get too far today into this chapter, but let's see if we can put this in perspective for now. The fun, the frivolous mood of our watching these often silly antics of the super wealthy and the super powerful who have nothing better to do than drink and party and attend social events. Well, this is now all given way to darkness and fear. The lush of a king, King Xerxes, who we chuckled at when his new laws seemed best to him when he was drunk, and who was mainly concerned with finding the prettiest new wife possible, has now been duped by his second-in-command into signing the death warrant of millions of his own subjects, all based on a lie. So from the bounty of the banquets and the opulence of palace life, the scene now changes to mourning and to grief. When Mordecai reads the decree, he falls to pieces. No doubt understanding. There's no way that he could disassociate himself from being the cause of this coming horror. You slap the lion on the nose, there's every chance you're going to get eaten. And yet, we don't hear of him expressing regret or wishing he had just submitted to Haman who bore the spirit of Amalek. Everything Mordecai has done, it's as though deep down in the recesses of his soul, he knew the inevitability of this day happening. No matter what he might have done. Because Haman would have come up with some other pretext for the genocide that he wanted to commit upon the Jews of Persia. A genocide based on little more than some kind of inexpressible hatred from a source he no doubt had no knowledge of himself. Thus the scene of chapter 4 opens with Mordecai displaying all the usual highly dramatic Jewish and Middle Eastern symbols of mourning and grief, tearing his clothing, changing into sackcloth, pouring ashes over his head, and wandering through the city, loudly crying and wailing and lamenting his and his people's fate. Now let's understand that this crying and wailing is not being directed at God. He is shouting to the city of Susa. For we moderns who live Europe, America, this extroverted, this open expression of shameless emotion, well, this is pretty uncomfortable for us, if not 
disturbing. I mean, goodness. For most Christians and most congregations in the West, it's all but impossible to raise one's hands beyond our belt lines. You know, and it, 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 even the most moving moments of praise and worship, lest they might get noticed. A loud amen or hallelujah might just get you just as loud shushes. But in ancient times, it was usual to project your feelings so that the public noticed. That's why you did it. People had no problem sharing their emotions, displaying them in overt ways for others to see. In fact, it was customary and therefore not to express them would have been seen as a lack of honor or perhaps a lack of even caring. Mordecai was doing nothing unusual. We are told that he well knew he couldn't approach his usual hangout the king's gate in his morning clothes, it was illegal to do that. And Mordecai only represents what was going on in every town and village and city where a colony of Jews lived. We're told that throughout the Persian Empire, the Jews fasted and wept and wailed and donned sackcloth. Well, they were in for a long 11 months. One imagines seeing a condemned man on death row calendar with a date certain has been set for his death. He has no control over it. We can conjecture that some probably fled for Judah, which would have been legal for them to do. But it must have been a very insignificant handful because it's not even mentioned. It shows all the more how disconnected from their homeland, Judah. Most of the diaspora Jews had become in only a century or so. We're going to continue chapter 4 next time. And we'll read most of this chapter as well as two Greek editions that include what is usually titled Mordecai's Prayer and then Esther's Prayer.